This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Flu season is here and there's good news. Ontario is the only province where the high-dose flu vaccine is covered for people 65 and over. In Alberta, for example, only seniors in long-term care homes are offered the high-dose shot, even though it's recommended for all seniors. Everyone else has to pay $75, and that's if they can get access to it. Last month, Health Minister Christine Elliott said an additional 200,000 doses of the high-dose vaccine have been ordered this year, but some Ontario seniors say they've been having trouble finding that high-dose shot. Libby Zneimer was joined Monday by her Zoomer squad to talk about accessing the high-dose vaccine. Zoomer magazine senior editor Peter Muggeridge and David Kravitz, demographic expert and Zoomer media vice president. It seems that every year we go through this is that how many do we have? Is it really short? Who's got it? Uh, the pharmacists are very eloquent saying we ought to be able to give a high-dose flu shot in the pharmacy the same as a regular flu shot because it is a health, a public health issue. The more people you uh, can vaccinate against the flu, the better it is for the whole community because people aren't running around, uh, you know, getting mm-hmm. getting sick and getting others sick. And the idea of having pharmacists do it is an access issue. It's, a, you know, if you have to go to the doctor, it is frankly a bit of a pain. We talked about it here on Thursday with a pharmacist and a doctor, and the doctor isn't happy with it either because that's valuable doctor time, though, frankly, in the doctor's offices, I don't know if they're all having, you know, a Dr. Gorfinkel has a nurse in yeah. her doctor's yes, office yeah. giving it out. He has to be there, though. Yeah. To, to bill for it, he has to be there, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the larger question is, um, why are so few Canadians um, getting the flu shot? I was looking at a CBC report that said only 34% of Canadians go for the flu shot you know, 34% of, of Canadians with chronic conditions go for the flu shot, which, which seems to me absurd if it's available and you have a chronic condition which can be exacerbated by flu. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you get the shot, you know? I don't get it. And in our newscast this morning, we just had some news about, you know, in the schools, it is supposedly mandatory in the schools here in Ontario, but there are exemptions. And not all the exemptions are for medical reasons, and our medical officer of health wants to end those non-medical exemptions. But but most of these exemptions are apparently in alternative schools, which are also publicly funded. So these alternative schools, uh, I don't know, um, you know, maybe they're full of those anti-vaxxers, but why should we be paying the bill for people who endanger public health is the endangering question. Endangering our health, yeah. Well, there's a big, there's a big um, misconception, uh, education gap between, is it, you know, I've heard of the flu vaccine, I've heard of the flu shot, 
too many adults or seniors think of vaccines as something that happened when they're children. You're born, you got that, yeah. your little course of vaccines when you're a kid, and then you need, don't need to go near it again. But in fact, you do. There are certain vaccines that have been developed since Zoomers were little kids that we, yeah. we need. So I think it, it really speaks to a larger issue of being better informed about what's out there. Mm-hmm. So that you can know what you need because it is a risk to your health and to the public health. I read one report that said a quarter of older adults are scared of needles. <laughs> well, okay. From, yeah. from when they were little kids. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They have those memories of those long, you know, syringes and everything and, and lingering memories. Do you think I mean, that's a problem? Or? <laughs> the other thing too is one year the flu shot was ineffective. And and do you think people have that? sort of, you know, in their heads, like... And it, so it didn't what? When, so yeah. what happened? If it, I mean, I got the flu that year. Yeah, so did uh, I, yeah. So, so what? Like, what did you lose by getting a flu shot? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, though, that Peter makes a good point, because if it's considered... I mean, we're talking about public perceptions yeah. here, and yeah. perception is reality, yeah. you know, whether we whether we think of ourselves as better informed or not. There is this kind of annual cycle. Is it a bad flu this year? Yes, it is. No, it isn't. What happened in Australia? Because they're a season ahead yeah. of us. Mild. It was yeah, mild it was in Australia. Mild. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I so, thought it was bad. There you go. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> and then did the industry develop the right strain? Yes, they did. No, they didn't. Well, do they, they have they, enough? Yes, was, they do. No, they don't. So it's all There was apparently a little bit of a delay in yeah. delivery of the regular flu <clears throat> right. shots because it took them a while. Right. So there is this this kind of floating target that says this year the flu itself might not be bad, the vaccine itself might be effective or not. I think that um, there is that if you see it as a kind of a variable, like a kind of a trend thing, am I going to be on trend or off trend mm-hmm. this year? Do I really need it? I think that accounts for it. But I must say, I think a 71 percent uh, hit rate among seniors is pretty That's good. That's high. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty high. Yeah. Peter, what would you like to leave us with? Get out and get the flu shot, I guess, and, and you know, keep families safe, keep older people safe. You visit in nursing homes or hospitals. If you're protected, they're protected. When you come into flu season, when we come into the winter, everybody should check in with their doctor to find out uh, the story. It's up to us to get the information, but the doctor or the pharmacist have that information and we should go get it. David Kravitz, demographic expert and Zoomer Media vice president and Zoomer Magazine senior editor, Peter Mugridge. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. How did last weekend's time change affect you? There's evidence that even though it's just an hour difference, it affects our bodies like jet lag. After a time change, there are also more collisions on our roads and more heart attacks and strokes, which is why a lot of people want to eliminate the practice of changing the clocks. B.C.'s provincial politicians have already made a move to make daylight saving time permanent, while some experts say it should really be standard time that should be permanent. Libby was joined by Miriam Judah, Research Associate in the Department of Psychology at Simon Fraser University, and Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at York University. Plenty of evidence that it doesn't do us any good, and it's doing us some harm. The fall seems to be easier on us because we are, in the spring, we're losing an hour of sleep, so everyone's going to be a bit sleep-deprived, and in the fall, you get 
to sleep in for an hour on Sunday morning, which is fine because we're all sleep-deprived anyway in our society. And it seems like it's a little easier for our biological clocks to adapt in the fall because it's closer. We're going to be moving closer to our body time, and I think that's the real issue we want to discuss. Miriam, Judah, there seems to be, there is a move afoot in British Columbia because there is proposed legislation. Uh, So Yeah, so unfortunately in the wrong direction. So British Columbia wants to move forward legislation to have permanent daylight saving time and not permanent standard time. So we wrote a letter, an open letter, warning about the health uh, and safety implications of permanent daylight saving time versus permanent standard time. It's daylight saving time that is uh, causing a problem. So uh, standard time is much more aligned to sun time, and our circadian clock is aligned to sun time. It's not aligned to uh, to the time on our watch. And what happens with daylight saving time is that now we are moving all our social schedules, such as work, uh, school start time, one hour earlier. Uh, now, our circadian clock still being aligned to sun time. That means that not, so now suddenly there's a misalignment between our social schedules and our circadian clock. So we have to get up an hour earlier, physiologically speaking, when we're still physiologically sleepy. And also, it cuts on our sleep duration. Uh, we're not getting enough sleep. And it's not just that one night after the time change in spring, but it actually the sleep deprivation continues over many months afterwards because we are misaligned. So we have to get up an hour earlier, but most of us are not going to bed an hour earlier because our seeking clock is keeping us uh, too awake in the evening. Daylight saving time is going to give us more light in the afternoon, and that's what we are on in the summer, so that's summertime. Standard time uh, gives us more light in the morning, and that's what we've moved to now. Uh, the thing about the human clock, and Miriam will be able to speak to this better than I can, uh, is that the human clock really needs to be reset by light in the morning. We have a clock that runs a little bit slow, and it needs to be uh, advanced. It needs to be speeded up a bit, and it's the light in the morning that will shorten it, speed it up a bit. Light in the afternoon is actually going to lengthen the clock and slow it down a bit and make us want to stay up later, and then we want to get up later in the morning, and that puts us further out of step with our social clock, and that's what Miriam was talking about, social jet lag. You feel like you're jet lagged a little bit every day. So the uh, light in the afternoon sounds great, and that, I think, is why daylight saving time has been popular with the public. When you talk about it, they say, great, we want light in the afternoon, to do more activities after work, but it's going to make it harder for us to adapt to that social schedule. The light in the morning is what we really need, and that's what will get better with standard time. Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, would it depend? I mean, some people are naturally early risers. Other, others are the opposite. Does it depend on which you are? Well, it definitely will be. We've been talking about averages across the whole population, but people are going to be individuals. Um, the research I do at York University looks at the genetics of circadian clocks. Now, we don't look at humans. We look at a simple organism, a fungus, because it's easy to work with. But our work and that of many other people in other organisms tells us the clock is genetic. It's made out of genes in their protein products that produce a timekeeping mechanism in a cell. And different people can have a different genetic 
uh, influence on their clocks. Some people are naturally larks. They want to wake up in the morning. Some people are naturally owls. They want to stay awake at night. So, of course, there are going to be individual differences, and the clock isn't a habit that you can break and reform. It's it's written in your genes. So those individuals who aren't like the average individual, they just have to find their own way to, to cope with what society's doing. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add that particularly affected by daylight saving time are a night out because they now have to get up a whole hour earlier. So it's, it's actually night out that are most at a disadvantage with daylight saving time. Miriam Judah, research associate at Simon Fraser University, and Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, associate professor in the Department of Biology at York University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsik. Will a kinder, gentler Premier Doug Ford make for a kinder, gentler plan to run the province? On Tuesday, our strategy panelists gather to discuss what was expected to be unveiled in the Ontario Tories' fall economic statement, which was delivered Wednesday. Joining Libby with their thoughts, Aline Kanji, Vice President of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation, Michael Diamond, Principal of Upstream Strategy Group, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. It will be a more uh, stay-the-course type of statement that I don't... I think there has been some uh, step backs from some of the cuts that were being proposed, which I think are reasonable. And um, But I think it will really be hold steady approach, and I don't think we're going to see any major new announcements. And I don't think there's going to be many surprises. The Liberals had a, lo- a news conference and, and Mitzi Hunter, the former education minister who's running for the leadership, you know, they said, we expect the deficit to go down and the Ford government has to come clean and admit that we, the liberals, left the economy in great shape. And, and that's why we are going to see gains. Michael, uh, is, is that an, a winning argument? Well, I don't think anyone's going to believe Misty Hunter on matters of what a strong economy is. So I don't think it's a particularly strong announcement, but I think uh, as a uh, strong argument. But I think uh, Karen makes uh, very good points. You know, it's important to remember last year's fall economic statement was the first time the new government, after 15 years, really had a chance to showcase uh, a uh, fiscal agenda. We're not going to be seeing that tomorrow, would be my guess, because, of course, they've been able to introduce a budget and they've been in government for over a year now. So it won't be quite as big of an event as it was last year, but I think it will be really a a, a plan that will be unveiled to uh, show balance across the board, balance in spending, balance in returning to balanced budget, and balance in building the problem. Aleem, I mean, this comes at a time where on the one hand, say with uh, teachers' unions, they're being accused of making uh, very damaging cuts. And on the other, on the right, uh, people are saying they haven't cut enough. They've backtracked from everything they plan to do. So where are they at? Well, this is one of the things we're going to hear about in the economic statement tomorrow. Um, we know that the numbers are going to be a lot more favorable uh, than, than they expected. And, and, and that is attributable to larger than expected revenues. Um, you know, let's face it, the economy and businesses, you know, when you want to compare us to Alberta, um, even some of the Atlantic provinces, um, Ontario continues to fire on all cylinders. And I think this is not what the government uh, expected. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, getting back to balance from what was originally a $15 billion deficit. And that's with a B, of course. 
So now 7.4. Um, so revenues have actually uh, increased. And so um, there, there may be less uh, belt tightening because we're dealing really with a smaller deficit than was, than was originally expected. One of the things that the government has come under fire for the last week or so. So we've had announcements on the one hand uh, from long-term care about allocations for beds, and this after the financial accountability officer came out with a pretty stunning report saying, even if the Ford government follows through on all their promises, these waste lists for long-term care are going to grow. And in the meantime, Andrea Horvath is up in the legislature every day saying, and this number is pretty eye-opening, she's saying in their first year, they only created 21 new long-term care beds. The government, um, Christine Elliott and, and Minister Fullerton, are saying, well, it's complicated, it takes time, we're working on it, we've made these allocations. So how um, how important is that, Karen? And, and how much, you know, how much, who who is believable in this? Well, I, I think actually both sides are believable. And I, you know, I, I, it's not that I want to avoid uh, taking an opinion on it, but uh, you, you know, 15 years ago, I worked for the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Long-Term Care on a project to build 20,000 new long-term care beds because that was seen as the way of easing the backlog in the emergency rooms. So fast forward 15 years, the province has added um, more than 20,000 long-term care beds, and we still have the problems in the emergency rooms. So while we do need more supports for our seniors and long-term care beds might be part of that solution, we still have a challenge understanding what is the reason that we're having the backlog and the bottlenecks in the hospitals that we're having. And I, and I think that we struggle well, to figure that out and we don't, have a, uh, we don't really have a good answer, to be mm-hmm. candid, because we don't know. We've tried various things to clear that backlog and we've not been able to. And when they get older and they're frail and they need more support, going home may not be an option. And yet the family may not be ready to be talking about long-term care. And so there's, there's a, it's, it's a complicated time of life. And uh, the solutions aren't all there for for families. Former Toronto City Councillor Karen Stintz and political strategists Michael Diamond and Aleem Kanji in conversation with Libby on Tuesday ahead of Wednesday's fall economic statement, which now puts the expected deficit at $9 billion and boosts spending by $1.3 billion on health and education, largely due to a reversal of cuts to programs and services in the spring budget. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Kopsick. Are you worried about lead in your water? You've probably heard about the year-long investigation by over 120 journalists affiliated with nine Canadian universities and ten different media organizations. The researchers conducted water tests on hundreds of homes across 11 different cities and analyzed thousands of previously undisclosed results. And what they found is that in one-third of results, lead levels in water supply exceed Canadian guidelines. The highest levels of lead were found in Montreal, Regina, and Prince Rupert, B.C. Should we be worried here in Toronto? Libby put that question to Eva Pip, biology professor at the University of Winnipeg. We've known about this problem for decades. I remember talking about it as early as 1982. And so it seems that each generation rediscovers this problem. But we can't make much headway because of the cost that it would take to replace this type of distribution pipe and also 
the plumbing systems in houses that have the the lead. And, of course, as time goes on, it doesn't get any cheaper to do it. My understanding is that in most cases, the water that comes from the municipality is okay, but it's the lead pipes that may exist in homes where you get a problem. Is that right? Uh, Yes, it can be the lead plumbing right in the house. But in some cases, you also have the connecting service pipe that comes from the water main to your house. That can be lead as well. And uh, the only way to know for sure whether you have a lead problem or not is to get your water tested. How do you tell if your pipes are lead? If you look at your plumbing, uh, you can tell the difference between, say, copper or plastic pipe. The lead pipe will be a, a kind of a black or sometimes oxidized gray color, and it will be in older houses. Do you believe the reassurances that we've heard from the mayor, from the head of the water here, who says you don't really have to worry in Toronto? And Eva Pip, should we believe that? Well, it, it depends, of course, on how much lead you have uh, in, in total that your water is standing in. It depends on a lot of other factors, for example, the flow rate, How much water do you use? Because the longer it stands in contact with the lead pipe, the more uh, leaching uh, can occur. And you also have things like temperature and the pH. But what most municipalities add at the treatment plant is a chemical called orthophosphate Mm -hmm. or phosphoric acid. And what it does is it coats the insides of pipes and therefore it reduces the amount of leaching that you have. But again, you can't really know what your specific situation is unless you get tested. Are the tests completely reliable? They're offered okay, by now the this, city? This is a whole other minefield because the standard way that samples are collected for testing is first you open the faucet, you flush the water, you let it run for five minutes, then you take the sample, and then you submit that for testing. And this does not reflect reality because how many consumers will stand at the faucet or at the kitchen sink for five minutes for the water to run before they fill their coffee pot or, you know, or or, or take a drink? The testing, in my opinion, doesn't really correspond to what you are actually being exposed to. Because if you take the water as soon as it comes out of the pipe, it will likely have more lead in it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the worst will be what is called first draw water, which is in the morning when it has been standing uh, all night in the pipe, or if you've been away, say, for a weekend, and then you come back, and uh, that's even worse. So that first draw water will always have the greatest concentration. Uh, Something else that you should uh, not do is you should never drink from your hot water tap, because some people like to have a shortcut in the morning. They get up, and they think, well, 
I'll just put the hot water in the coffee pot and that'll, you know, speed things up. You should never do that because the higher temperature vastly increases the rate of leaching of lead into the water. Plus, you may also have metals in your hot water tank that exacerbate the problem. Eva Pip, biology professor at the University of Winnipeg. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Diane in Toronto, who called to say she's decided she'll always get the flu shot on an annual basis. I'm 70, 70 years old, and um, I hesitated for a lot of years, decades even, to getting getting the flu shot because I had two bad reactions to it. And I remember phoning your show a few years ago, and I forget whether it was you or Jane that very gently suggested it would be a good thing to uh, you know talk to my doctor about it. I had one last year without any reaction whatsoever. So I'm going to see my doctor this Wednesday, and I'm going to I'm going to go for this, this flu shot again. You know, I just built up this fear in my mind that it wouldn't be a good thing, and uh, I had no problem with it, and um, I'm all ready to go again. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740, also 96.7 FM, downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.